You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I am glad you're here. I know, I love that because I always say it, hardly original, but I am glad you're here. And you know what? I am looking forward to talking with Chris Sims, Alberta Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It's the first time I've ever invited someone on to do the shocking stat. And I promise you, as a taxpayer, you will be shocked. I also have Brian Gitt joining me. Brian's one of the most informative people, informed people too, when it comes to the whole energy situation. Uh, But what's so interesting about Brian is for 20 years, he was a leading solar advocate in California, but now he's changed. He is now favoring nuclear and uh, natural gas as a transition. I mean, I can't do it justice. So we'll get into that with Brian. Stay with us uh, for an absolutely terrific interview. This guy is great. Uh, I also have to talk about Aussie, you know, uh, because last week we talked about government adding to the cost of housing despite their claims about affordable housing. Well, they did it again. There's one more big area that's going to throw on some extra cost to any new build in the country, and he'll tell us about it. Uh, I've got all sorts of other things, obviously a quote of the week. I've got a goofy. I've got uh, Victor summing up a great week or an interesting week, rather. Usually it's quiet at this time of year in the investment markets, not in this area. Plus, I've got Mike Levy talking about our changing buying patterns thanks to inflation. But first, let me get to this. This week, one of the big stories was Dr. Anthony Fauci announcing that he's going to step down from his National Institute of Health leadership post. Well, he has had a noteworthy career, but I think he's going to be remembered first and foremost for his handling of COVID, where he became the government's voice of the pandemic. Some would argue that's actually the problem, as the Wall Street Journal's Holman Jenkins asked, what part of COVID information wasn't politicized by the time it reached the public? Well, I'm going to add what issue isn't politicized by the time it reaches the public, whether we're talking climate change or health care, affordable housing. I mean, it's a huge list. So hardly a surprise that even a global pandemic that produced massive social, economic, financial, and of course, health problems wasn't immune to the politicization of it. Remember those prime minister daily press conferences at the first months of the pandemic? Gosh, they resembled a campaign speech many days. And it was made worse by the inexplicable (laughs) compliance of the press gallery in allowing the prime minister's office to decide who was allowed to ask questions. I mean, the goal hasn't been to inform the public, but rather to force us to choose sides like it's a game. But that has consequences. I mean, right from the beginning, instead of trying to engage or trying to build bridges with people who question the pandemic response, Government and bureaucrats like Dr. Fauci chose to inflame divisions by immediately dismissing any dissension, by attacking those individuals, even the top professionals in the country. Well, in Canada, I don't have to look any further than the government's immediate dismissal of the truckers' convoy. Gosh, they hadn't even left Alberta, and they were absolutely attacked, and character assassinations, that kind of stuff. But the intensified societal division aside, I mean, that's what that produced. The Wall Street Journal points to what I think is even a bigger problem. They state that Dr. Fauci's legacy is going to be that millions of Americans will never trust government health experts in the same way. This comes during a time when, look around, declining confidence in government is intensifying everywhere. You know what? COVID was an opportunity to actually reverse that trend. But for many, the no questions allowed, even worse, even experts who question government policy were vilified and ostracized, even at times lost their job. No, they blew that opportunity. Dr. Fauci became the leading practitioner of what's called the noble lie, lying for the public good. And it's a conceit that many politicians regularly exhibit on a wide variety of issues. 
Do you remember when he told us masks were ineffective, but then, you know, a few months later said, nah, that wasn't really the truth. We had a shortage of masks, so we wanted to make sure there was enough for healthcare workers. I mean, there's a credibility problem there when you do that. I mean, they've constantly overstated the level of certainty with key issues like the protection or effectiveness offered by vaccination or masks. I mean, it's so easy to make the case that the goal was never to inform us, but rather to manage us. You know, I tried personally to give the health officials the benefit of the doubt, but eventually the inherent disrespect in their refusal to give full information or the data or the research to back up their guidelines and restrictions, well, it left me cold. Instead, they operated on the old Jack Nicholson assumption from the movie A Few Good Men that we can't handle the truth. My goodness. Well, you know what? I can handle the truth. I can be trusted with the information to make responsible decisions. And you know what? Maybe they'd agree. After all, I have a graduate degree and I'm a member of the laptop class, just like other people they know. But clearly, they don't feel that way about a majority of Canadians who they don't trust. And let me reiterate our, our whole system, financial, economic, social, revolves around trust. So undermining it should not be taken lightly. I'll finish with this, though. Coming back to what's arguably the most damaging aspect of the government's pandemic response, it was that no questions allowed attitude. It's an attitude that should be in the anti-science hall of fame, but it's been allowed to poison discussion on a huge variety of issues, far more than COVID. And I go back to Fauci just for a moment, because this was just so, such an, uh, like an astounding statement he made. He says, in personally attacking any expert who questioned uh, the authority, any expert who questioned the authority said at one point, he stated, you know, it's easy to uh, criticize, but they're really criticizing science because I represent science. Wow. That sounds like a new science cheered on by many in government that no one's allowed to question government experts. Judith Curry, she's climate scientist, formerly Georgia Tech, member of the National Research Council's Climate Research Committee. And she said, I believe in science has come to mean I do not question expert authority, which is antithetical to the scientific spirit as you can get. And nowhere were the health, social, economic, financial consequences more devastating than the no questions allowed attitude when they talked about locking down society. I mean, Fauci himself had said in January 2020, historically, when you shut things down, it doesn't have a major effect. That was consistent, by the way, with the World Health Organization policy from 2006, reiterated in October 2020. Had a John Hopkins study in September 2019 saying the same thing. But here's the thing. The consequences of the lockdown decisions will be felt financially, socially, and in terms of so many aspects of individual health for years to come. You know what? At times, I think the, the issues we face seem so overwhelming. But this is one area we can all make a difference. We can push back, not with a particular opinion on not supporting one or the other. I'm saying, though, we can push back against that no questions allowed attitude that's permeated so many issues because the damage is absolutely devastating. I've been looking forward to this. I mean, we want to bring you information that I think you must hear. And I'm doing it for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Why? Because they did the research. And this is the shocking stat. Well, I was shocked at the research that uh, taxpayer.com did. As you know, since the beginning of this uh, pandemic, we've been sort of 
critical of that statement. We're all in this together financially. Well, the latest work coming out of the Taxpayers Federation shows us that not quite true. Chris Sims joins me. She's the director of the Alberta branch of Taxpayers Federation. Taxpayer.com does terrific work. So Chris, shock me. Well, I already am shocked. Shock the rest of our listeners. Well, the shocking thing is, is that we're not all in this together. We may be in the same storm, but we're in really different vessels here. For government workers, bureaucrats, politicians, that set, they're usually in a pretty fancy yacht. And the rest of us in the private sector are gasping and struggling in dinghies and rowboats, uh, many of which have a lot of leaks in them. So during the pandemic and lockdown, unfortunately, both politicians and bureaucrats at the federal level took big pay hikes, and they expanded the federal bureaucracy by tens of thousands of people. So which shocking stat do you want first? Do you want the politician pay hikes, or do you want the stats on bureaucrats? Well, let's go politicians, because they're the ones who are supposed to show leadership. And, you know, when you're in the middle of a lockdown, and so many people are suffering dramatically, though, profoundly, I can't do justice to it. And lo and behold, they give themselves a raise on top of everything else they got. Yeah, it's really gross. And so shout out uh, to our Ottawa office. It was our federal director, Franco Terrazano, who did a lot of this legwork and filed access to information requests to find out a lot of this data. So starting with members of parliament, the federally elected representatives for all Canadians, they gave themselves three pay hikes during this pandemic and the lockdown while they're telling the rest of us uh, that we're all in this together. And I got to be clear. Politicians already paid a heck of a lot of money, members of parliament and cabinet ministers. And on top of that, their expenses are eye-watering. They get their housing covered. They get their food covered while they're in Ottawa. Huge travel expenses. They're not struggling to put gasoline in their cars or pay for a bus pass like the rest of us are. So that's all cushy taken care of. On top of that, they gave themselves three pay pandemic pay hikes. So totaling around $10,000 extra. For your average backbencher, I'm talking the folks that never open their mouths in the House of Commons and their heads are hitting the curtains. For the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau actually has $20,000 more, $21,000 more during these three pandemic pay hikes. So yeah, members of Parliament, when they're saying to you, we're all in this together and let's all struggle, that's not true. They gave themselves big pay hikes while the rest of us were suffering. And I love you giving that other list there, by the way, but also, of course, their pensions just went yep. up. Why? Because their pensionable earnings just went up. So that's on top that rarely gets reported by anybody. So they got that bonus and then that. So let, let's talk about the broad bureaucracy. Yeah, this was the real eye-popping thing. I worked on Parliament Hill for years. And so I'm kind of used to the effect of the members of Parliament not lifting a finger or paying for their own way. Um, hot meals every day, per diems they can charge every day because they're technically away from home while they're in Ottawa. So all that's paid for. But the bureaucracy numbers here, that Franco uncovered were jaw-dropping. So a total of 114,000 federal government employees received more than $100,000 in salary in 2021. What that means is, if we had a federal sunshine list, the way that we see in Ontario and British Columbia and other jurisdictions in Canada, if we had a federal sunshine list, more than 114,000 of them would be landing on it. And if we compare that back to when the Trudeau government was first elected and took over in 2015, there were 43,000 bureaucrats on that list. That means that that has more than two and a half times the bureaucrats on that sunshine list. And we also saw pay raises during the pandemic. So the numbers are staggering. 
I, I want you to repeat the number, though, uh, that who received in the latest year that you've got the findings for compared to, say, 215. If you could do that again, because they're too big to comprehend. And even over 2020, I mean, it's a huge jump. It is a massive jump, okay? So let's just even compare to 2020, okay? Back in 2020, there were 74,925 federal bureaucrats making more than $100,000 a year, okay? 74,000. Now, 114,433. Huge numbers here. And again, these are federal bureaucrats paid for by taxpayers. All their salary is covered by you and me and the rest of us. And it has jumped really high. As you said, jaw dropping. I also want to just let me finish with this and just say, you know, the Taxpayer uh, Federation is funded by people who make donations, mm -hmm. people in Canada who know th how essential this information is. So I want to invite people to go to taxpayer.com. And I, I find the stuff that you do especially when you dig down, and, and that's what you regularly do. I mean, my congratulations to Franco in the Ottawa office, but regularly. Mm -hmm. I mean, without Taxpayers Federation, we wouldn't really have known what the story is on gas taxes throughout the country in different provinces. Uh, obviously, key information, especially when governments don't want to bring that to our attention. So again, a big plug for the Taxpayers Federation, but you can find them at taxpayer.com. Uh, make a donation. Chris Sims, thanks so much for finding time for it. Really quickly, on top of all that, those federal bureaucrats, more than 300,000 of them, got a pay hike during the pandemic while the rest of us were getting pay, pay cuts. It's, it's brutal. So yeah, thank you so much for uh, highlighting the work. Well, that's like getting a knockout punch to finish with. <laughs> you just dropped the mic on us. That was perfect. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. You know, there was a new Angus Reid poll out this week that is a reminder of, no kidding, inflation is really impacting us up and down the income scale, plus another new one by TD Bank. I mean, I want to bring in Michael Levy right now. You know, it's, it's obvious, but it's more and more people in these surveys. We've been having the surveys, you know, really consistently for about six to eight months. But man, we just keep moving up the income scale about who's getting impacted in a negative way by the higher prices. Well, we uh, do, Mike. And uh, I've got to tell you, this most recent one, I think, is, is going to hit just about every listener when you listen to the two or three things that are really impacting Canadians right now, according to the poll. Uh, in that poll, 80% of respondents said that because of the rising prices, the inflation, and things that are going on in the economy are going to cut spending. Just think about that for a minute. 80% of respondents, 80% of Canadian families are going to cut spending. 50% of Canadians could not manage a $1,000 sudden expense. I mean, that, that's scary. And we've talked about these numbers before, Mike, about some couldn't find 200 or 400, but this is 50% of Canadians. And the third one that really caught me, and, and, and this I, you know, sort of scratched my head a little bit, 78% of Canadians believe grocery stores are taking advantage of the inflation to pump up prices and pump up their profits. So, you know, taking a look at all of that, I was... um reading, a, I don't know, a couple days ago about uh, a July report, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem explained inflation in terms of economic 101, and this just ties absolutely right to the poll that was just taken. Businesses are having trouble attracting workers. 
are having trouble keeping workers. So they keep, so they start raising wages and they've got strong demand for their products. So they pass those higher wages on to higher prices. Households then face higher inflation. Workers want higher wages to compensate them for higher inflation. Firms offer those higher wages. That gets higher inflation. And you can see this creates a self-perpetuating cycle. Mike, end of quote. I mean, there's so much to that. Uh, you throw It's like throwing a red bone to me or a red red flag when you uh, start talking about 78% Canadians think that grocery stores are gro- gouging them. Now, there's certainly incidences like we had that blood uh, b- uh, bread collusion scandal going back a couple of years. So I can see where some of that comes from. But I think we also have to appreciate exactly what you've just said. Wages are already going up. That gets transferred to higher food prices. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the whole raw product itself is more expensive, you know, coming into food because manufacturing costs have gone up. Why? Because energy costs have gone up, like right through the chain. We have to appreciate, uh, I want Canadians to understand, these are more complicated than saying, hey, somebody's gouging me. No, this is a point about inflation. It ripples through the economy in so many ways. I mean, the way we get our goods is so sophisticated. You know, Milton Friedman had the famous... Uh, quote about you can't even figure out how they make a pencil because there's so many people involved in that transaction and it's no different in our food uh our food chain for individuals so i just i'd ask people to appreciate it's more sophisticated than simplistically saying oh they're trying to kill us with you know profit taking no right along the line and that's the other point that this angus reed poll says to me mike is so where are people cutting back you know what so much of it is exactly the same place they did during the pandemic. I'm not, you know, different reason, but we didn't go to restaurants in a pandemic. Oh, that's discretionary spending we're cutting back on. We didn't do entertainment. Oh, that's discretionary spending. We didn't do, uh, you know, our travel. As it looks like they're all predicting that we're going to cut back on our travel starting, you know, in the fall. So airline prices might go down and that'll help inflation. But the point being, same kind of industries that were impacted so directly by pandemic. So, yeah, I just think there's tons in that kind of response from Canadians that, yeah, this is a hardship, uh, you know, being created here. And obviously, the lower down the income scale, I think, is where you get impacted because food prices are a necessity. You know, energy is a necessity. Shelter costs are going up. Look at rents in the major cities like Vancouver. Wow. You know, so, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Well, it is. And, Mike, um, it's hitting discretionary spending particularly hard. And now we're starting to see it. As we came out of the pandemic, people had money. Government supplied money in a lot of cases, big bulging bank accounts. So they were buying everything. And that was sort of the COVID relief. I'm out. I'm going to go do this kind of thing. But you, uh, you, you, you walk into stores where there is discretionary spending. And I heard one anecdotal story about uh, a, a fellow who does hardwood floors for houses, and he he'd been busier than heck, and all of a sudden he's turned around, and where he would have eight or ten customers during a day, small business, he now maybe has one or two. People are having to take that hardwood floor choice and turn it into groceries, or turn it into gas, or turn it into whatever the necessities were. But one more thing, Mike, and I think this is really interesting for all our listeners wherever they are, the podcast listeners. In British Columbia, there's a British Columbia government employees union strike going on. Well, that strike impacts liquor stores because they can't get the booze from the warehouses 
to the liquor stores because that union is on strike. All right, they may solve that and they probably will. And costs of wages are going to go up significantly. So anybody who's sitting out there thinking that the British Columbia Liquor Board is going to take less profit and it's going to impact their bottom line is absolutely wrong. So not only is everything else going up, but your bottle of hooch, your bottle of beer, your bottle of wine, those are all going to be passed on and it's throughout the whole economic sphere. Those price rises because of um, wages, because of inflation, they're going to hit your pocketbook. Yeah, and I just remind people that the rate of growth in prices, that's what inflation is. What's the rate of growth in prices? It may slow down. Hey, but high prices are here to stay. I think that's one of the key things to get. Uh, The other one, just sorry, Mike, this is more personal that bothered me, is 27% of Canadians say they're going to trim back on charitable donations. And that is a big worry for me. And, uh, you know, it's just obviously uh, Special Olympics uh, immediately comes to mind. I hope it comes to mind for our audience, too. But, you know, the implications, uh, as you just said, ripple throughout the society, ripple throughout the economy. Well, you know, you, you, you said it, and I think this is where the greatest impact is going to be, Mike. Higher prices are here to stay. Equals, my opinion, a hard landing for the economy that's recession. And there's just no other way I can say that. Well, that's why we keep an eye on wages too, which are inflationary, but can they keep up to the rate of inflation? They're not even close to the rate of food inflation. Mike, we'll have many more opportunities to talk about this. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. You know, the world is all about energy these days, duh. You know, it's pretty obvious. You know, it's the essential for our lives, our standard of living, etc. But we're talking an awful lot about it because there's going to be a challenge. We're in a challenge. I think it's about to get worse. We'll see. But I look around at natural gas prices. I look at the problems that we're going to see in Asia. The list is a long one. And I thought, I got to get Brian Git back on with us. Brian does an absolutely fabulous job looking at the broad energy market. And you can find him at Brian Git at Twitter. So go ahead and do that. He has a blog, he's Twitter, it's fantastic stuff because it's based on tons of information and research there. Brian, thanks so much for finding time for us again. Thanks. I was really glad to be back. I mean, we had such a great conversation the first time. I'm looking forward to kind of going deeper into the nuclear topic and and other topics as they come up. Well, let me start with this one because it's it's a little bit on your background. You're well known now, so people know, you know, some of it, but let me sum it up and, and just fill in a couple of blanks. But the thing I would have described you as is someone who is totally committed to the environment, someone who's totally committed in, you know, the energy side of that, was an advocate for solar and other renewables, really for what, close to 20 years, you know? Yeah, more more than 20 years of my professional career were dedicated to promoting wind, solar, energy efficiency, and really running these programs on the ground. So we were working with all of the California utilities and local governments and key stakeholders to really promote these programs and implement them. So I've kind of have not just a high level theoretical kind of understanding of them, but actually what actually what is working on the ground to upgrade homes and make them more efficient or to install solar and these the various challenges that are involved. Well, is that what I mean, I'm fascinated with someone who has got that background, who is that level of commitment, you know, professional commitment there. 
And you've evolved your thinking. You've changed your thinking. I mean, however adjective do you want to throw at me on that one? And, you know, much more on natural gas as a transition and nuclear power as a future. Can you describe, like, what made you change your mind? Well, the various policies and programs that I was involved in championing and promoting just weren't working. You know, as you as you said, I got into this because I'm passionate about the environment. I wanted to protect these beautiful natural areas that I love to enjoy backpacking and climbing and all of these outdoor pursuits. And what I found was the best intentions and even a whole lot of money behind it weren't achieving the results that we had hoped. So it started really making me question my beliefs and and uncovering or unpacking what was kind of beneath all this because I thought the problem was we just didn't have enough money. That was the problem, right? But no, and I was in California. We had all of the key stakeholders from the California Energy Commission, the investor-owned utilities like Pacific Gas and Electric and SoCal Edison to the local governments. We had the tra- building trades and the contractors on board. We had you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding from the federal government. This was during the Recovery Act. So we had all the critical pieces that I had envisioned that were necessary to transform the market, to basically make all these homes more energy efficient and to really scale renewable energy. And I just wasn't seeing the evidence on the ground uh, in terms of the results. Uh, So evidence is the key word there. It's interesting. A lot of people don't care about the evidence, but we're witnessing that. I I am absolutely blown away when I look at what's going on in Europe, when I look at sort of natural gas prices, when I look at the fallout from two major fertilizer manufacturers just announcing this week that they're cutting back because they can't afford to do the ammonia. I'm amazed that people didn't even know ammonia was involved in nitrogen-based fertilizers too. The evidence doesn't seem to be dissuading them. You know, it doesn't, I don't see a big shift. We still had what the economic minister of of Germany saying, well, we're still going to close down those nuclear plants, you know, in December, you know, after a lot of going back and forth. Now, other countries have changed that. Japan is reopening. But still, I'm just sort of amazed that the evidence isn't there yet for them. You know, energy realism is going to bat last here. And at the end of the day, this is going to be massive political backlash because there's no way that in today's modern world, especially in Europe, that people are going to go without 24-7 reliable power. And they're not going to go along with energy rationing and paying these skyrocketing energy costs and having all of their industrial sector unwinding and basically deindustrializing. Germany and parts of Europe right now due to these conditions, I actually point, I call them the four horsemen of the energy apocalypse. These are the, what I think are the root causes of a lot of these bad energy policies and programs that have been implemented over the last 20 years. And, you know, I think Germany is a great example of this, but it's not just Germany. There's many countries that have been infected with this mind virus and way of thinking. And those four horsemen of the apocalypse, of the energy apocalypse, our first one is fear. Fear for since beginning of humankind has always been a very powerful weapon uh, to control and manipulate people. But fear of nuclear power is one has totally unwound all of the progress that was made in Europe. I mean, Europe in, in the U.S. to some degree and around the world was seeing this huge amount of growth in the 1970s, 1980s, etc. And what we saw was we had these hor- horrific accidents, obviously. But statistically, 
nuclear is the most powerful, safest, and most reliable way to generate electricity, right? And even with those accidents, that's still the case. And so we people are scared of nuclear for the same reason they're scared of flying in an airplane. You know, even though flying an airplane is a lot is statistically a lot safer than driving in a car, there's an emotional aspect to it. So fear is so powerful. And there's two uh, two sides of this: fear of nuclear irrationally, but also fear of this climate emergency. This has been sold that the world is ending in 12 years or 20 years, that going past the point where we're going to be able to adapt to these significant changes in the climate. And although climate change is a concern, it's not the only concern. We have lots of problems that we need to fix in the world. And most people have been pumped so full of fear around this that it has driven a lot of bad energy policy and bad decision making. So that's the first horseman is fear. The second is just ignorance. You know, most people don't understand the complexity of how the energy system works. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's it's a very complicated machine. It's the largest most important machine on the face of the earth. And most people, when they come home from work and they want to be spend time with their families and seek out entertainment, they're not going to go study what intermittent renewables impact is on the grid and how that's going to affect reliability long-term and what is the real state of battery storage. They're just not going to do that. The third is ideology. And this is kind of these green beliefs or, that really are guiding the decision-making. It's becoming almost like a modern day religion or a modern day cult of, of, of way of viewing the world. And then the last is this utopian thinking idea that society can run on the wind and the sun. So these are kind of the, the four horsemen of what I call the energy apocalypse. And we're seeing it in real time happening right now in Europe, where they've run this experiment for the last 20 years, overinvestment in renewable energy, underinvestment in nuclear power, and then shutting down even a lot of the existing plants and programs, as well as banning all fracking for natural gas, and then relying on energy imports from Russia. So they've delegated their energy security to uh, President Putin. I mean, that's not the smartest (laughs) strategy. So because of these underlying root causes that are driving the policy decisions. They've really put themselves in a vulnerable position. And unfortunately, bad energy policy has consequences. And we're seeing those consequences today. One of the things that's that's puzzled me, because, I mean, look, Putin went into Georgia in 2008, went into Crimea in 2014 and said, there's more to come. Like, And still, Merkel ignores that and says, I know that's the guy I want to be responsible for our energy grid. I mean, some of the stuff has been so unfathomable to me, including, and this is something, again, with your background, you could at least address. Was it news that the sun doesn't shine any every day? Was that news to people? Was, and I, I know that like people who support that hate it when you say that. But I'm saying on just a factual level, it seemed like it was, what? The wind doesn't blow all the time? I, I don't know. It's at that level that I've just been blown away. And I'm not critical of the ignorance part for people. But they're not trying to make policy. I am highly uh, critical of those people who want to change our lives, who want to control that level of our lives, being ignorant of some 
really fundamental facts. Yeah, I mean, all energy sources have trade-offs and they have to be carefully weighed and you have to find that right balance point. And that's everything. That's nuclear, natural gas, solar, wind, geothermal. They all have positive benefits as well as costs. So you need a set of evaluation criteria that you can really walk through methodically to evaluate those and weigh those risks. You know, those are things like energy security, reliability. You mentioned the intermittent renewables. Well, the, the theory was, well, if we just build enough of them across a broader area and then have some battery storage, that'll solve it. But obviously it's not. Things like affordability, things like versatility, energy that is in the form of electricity is not obviously the only energy that we need. It's about 20%. You still need to power all of the construction equipment, all of the diesel trucks, all of the ships, you know, all of these other applications that need energy besides just electricity. Scalability. Are these things actually scalable across you know, large urban areas? And then obviously emissions is, is a key one. Land use, you know, an example with land use, when you're comparing nuclear power and solar, you know, a nuclear power plant requires 75 times less land than a large solar farm or 360 times less land than a wind farm. So we're talking about a massive amount of land that is being used inefficiently, sometimes even paving over really good farmland or not always paving, but basically covering that farmland. So all of these things need to be taken into account, including the lifespan of these technologies. So when we're talking about something like nuclear power, you know, nuclear plants are generally able built for like a 60-year time frame. They're usually licensed for 40 and then they get licensed extensions upon meeting certain evaluation and testing. But theoretically, if they're well-maintained, they can last up to 100 years. Whereas you're looking at something like a wind turbine or a solar panel, well, wind turbines, after about 20 years, they degrade significantly in their performance after about 16 years. And by hitting 20 years, the cost to maintain them can be more than, especially if the subsidies aren't going to continue past that point, oftentimes don't make sense. So we have to really look at all of these evaluation metrics when we're weighing the trade-offs. Let me come back to the first two criteria you were saying, or, or, or apocalyptic, you know, horsemen of the apocalypse, and that is fear and ignorance. And I want to specifically ask some questions about nuclear. And so you just mentioned, just to jump on that, nuclear waste versus the waste in solar versus the waste in wind turbines. I know that, you know, a 20-year lifespan, we're starting to run into that problem. You would have been there, you know, as, as it was got initiated. What do we do with those solar panels, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's a challenge. I'm not saying it's not solvable. I'm just saying it's a challenge that we rarely talk about, but we sure talk about nuclear waste. It's a huge challenge. You know, solar panels create 300 times more waste than nuclear for the same unit of energy that you're generating. And so what are we doing with all these panels? Well, the proponents of, of solar say, well, we're going to recycle them, but we're not. In most of the world, we're not. I mean, some places they are. And when you recycle something, it costs a lot more to recycle a solar panel. So you, in essence, have all of these solar panels that are making their way to landfills. They're loaded full of toxic chemicals and heavy metals. When they break, that can then leach in those landfills and potentially enter the, the groundwater. So it's, it's not, or they get dumped in poor nations, like we're shipping them off where they don't have the environmental regulations. So we're talking about a massive amount of panels that are going to be disposed of and not recycled. Whereas compare that with nuclear power, nuclear waste, 100% of that waste is contained. 
and prevented from going into the environment. It is by far the, you know, incredibly safe. The way we store it today is in these very large concrete casks that are steel lined. Uh, in no one in the history of the nuclear industry over 60 plus commercial years of operation has ever had any negative health effect or any harm or certainly not death due to nuclear waste, right? So there there hasn't been any negative impact of this waste. So when people talk about this problem, you know, it's certainly something we need to be cognizant of and be thoughtful about. But we know how to store nuclear waste safely and we are storing it safely. And there's new technologies coming out. Deep isolation is an example of a, of a new technology that's borrowing the tools and techniques from the fracking industry, actually, in terms of horizontal drilling techniques to bore down deep into the earth in very stabilized geologic formations and be able to put these canisters down and store that nuclear waste for centuries or thousands of years as necessary. And they can pull it back up if needed. It can be attached to a wire line and, and extract it from those deep deposits. So we have these new technologies emerging, but to be quite honest, it's all safe and contained where it is. All of the waste in the United States, all the nuclear waste, after 60 years of commercial operation, and by the way, 20% of the United States electricity about comes from nuclear power. So we're not talking about a insignificant fraction of amount of power. After all of those years, after that high percentage of electricity generated, all that waste could fit on a single football field stacked 10 yards high. So it's incredibly concentrated. You can hold the uranium pellets. You could hold 10 of those pellets in the palm of your hand, and that would power your house for an entire year, right? So we're talking about something that's incredibly concentrated, and it can also be recycled. Nuclear waste doesn't to have to be just dumped. Basically, we can take the nuclear waste coming out of our large light water reactors, and then it can be recycled and used in new advanced reactors. There's Oklo, a company that makes advanced reactors as well as Argonne National Labs, are partnering right now to build out this capacity to do this and to test this. This has been done successfully in the past. So we just need to invest more in this infrastructure to be able to recycle it, but it can be recycled and it takes something that would be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years down to just 300 years. And then we're reusing the majority of that, of that spent fuel. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of Canadians don't seem to understand that Ontario has about 60% of their electrical grid produced by nuclear already. You know, they don't know it even, you know, a lot of Canadians don't appreciate it, it exists at that point. Let, let me ask you, okay, so you're going to close your eyes now and look out 15 years. Is nuclear going to be the dominant energy source or the growth of nuclear going to be where the emphasis is going to be? Nuclear power is inevitable. It is our destiny as a species that we're going to continue up the ladder of power density to higher concentrated, more efficient fuel types. The timing is somewhat to be determined, right? Because that's a political decision. I have no doubt that we will eventually get there. Predictions, you're always going to be wrong to some degree. But what I would predict is that what we're going to start seeing, we're already starting to see the shift right now. You know, for example, there's 59 nuclear projects under construction right now, representing 59,000 megawatts of energy around the world. All of those reactors are scheduled to begin generating power by 2028, right? So these are China, India, Turkey, South Korea, United Kingdom, Russia, UAE, Bangladesh, France, Egypt, all of these countries 
are investing in nuclear power. We're starting to see the shift. I think this this most recent global energy crisis and has really shown the absolute necessity for energy security and to control these soaring energy prices. And nuclear power provides the tools to do that. So we are seeing this this resurgence, this what I would call the very beginning of a new nuclear renaissance. But it's going to take time. These kinds of projects don't happen overnight. And although although there's these 30 countries that are building out these 59 projects right now, and there's hundreds more that are being planned, it's going to take time to build all that infrastructure. So what I would see happening is that the 2030s, I think we're going to see some massive growth in the nuclear sector. That's going to be really where we start seeing all of this planning and all these this initial construction starting to really gain momentum and speed. So I think the 2030s, 2040s are going to be where we're just going to be ramping up in a significant way, especially in addition to the large reactors. I think the smaller advanced reactors are going to play a huge role in this. And we're starting to see those implemented in the mid-2020s and the late 2020s. And then I think you're going to start seeing those really ramp in the 2030s as well. So contrary to what most people think, I don't think in the year 2050 that wind and solar power are going to be a significant portion of our electrical system. I don't. I think we're going to see the backlash happen. This It's going to be quite forceful because people are not going to put up with unreliable energy um, and not having access to 24-7 power and to be able to run our factories and all of the commercial businesses that need to rely on this power. And it's interesting to watch, you know, Japan announced this week, you know, their push into 2023, uh, South Korea, we're getting this reopening. And it's still, as I said at the outset, it's amazing to see Germany holding fast. I mean, here's here's a country that's going to be in real trouble. And I'm wondering, boy, wait till they do one winter. I wonder if that's going to change some people's mind about the decommissioning last year and still saying they're going ahead with decommissioning the three nuclear plants, you know, in December this year. I was just in Germany uh, a little over a month ago. I was traveling with Michael Schellenberger, who's a, a writer and journalist, and we were wanting to understand what is going on in Germany with this energy crisis. We were also in the Netherlands doing some research and interviewing some of the farmers around the Dutch farmer protest. And it was really surprising. We met, for example, with folks representing trade associations of, of German industry. We talked to a lot of different stakeholders there. and. I think everyone knows that this is a huge problem, but I don't know that the the magnitude of it has really sunk in about what's potentially happening there. And every day, it seems like there's more and more and more bad news. As you were alluding to earlier, these fertilizer plants, steel, aluminum, glass, all of these factories are starting to shutter or ration or curtail their, the amount of product that they can produce, we're starting to see rationing happening in multifamily buildings, limiting the amount of times people can take hot showers during the day. I think we're going to see a significant deindustrialization of Germany starting this winter because these companies cannot afford to operate at the current levels of the price of electricity and gas. And what are they going to do? They either have to shut down or they have to move. And these are very capital intensive, very expensive plants. This is the spillover effects of this are going to really have a significant negative impact, I think, on the European economy. And unfortunately, a lot of people are going to freeze in their homes this winter. And it's it's really unfortunate because I think most of this could be avoided 
this was a self-inflicted wound, as I alluded to earlier, about this combination of bad energy policies and over-reliance on Russia. It's just there was no need for this to happen. Yeah, I, I look at uh, things and, and the, the fact that, for example, again, people in the environmental movement don't seem to be making the proper connection. So, for example, you just alluded to that, you know, aluminum production is being cut back. Well, someone should explain to me how you're going to make an electric vehicle without aluminum. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's so fundamental. You know, I've, I've often mentioned this because I was so blown away. The most flack I'd had in years is when I pointed out we didn't have enough lithium or cobalt or, or copper or any of the materials to do or solar panels coming out of Xinjiang province, you know, for goodness sakes. But it was one thing to say, we want to go renewable and sort of saying, I want to build a house. By the way, we don't have any materials for it. Well, good luck with that. That doesn't work. And, you know, the amount of fossil fuels that's going to be required to dig up the amount of minerals that we need to do solar and wind. I'm just sort of flabbergasted of the lack of practicality in looking at the energy situation when it's so key. We don't have the existing mines or mines that are in the planning process to come anywhere close to meeting the various renewable energy and electrification goals using those technologies of wind, solar, and electric vehicles. They're, they just, and it takes on average, according to the IEA, about 16 years to develop and really bring a new mine online. So what are we talking about here? This isn't something you just spin up in a couple of years. We're talking about something that takes um, you know, well over a decade, into decade and a half. And where are all these minerals? Plus, we are already reliant on these critical minerals for so many different technologies in society, right? And what's going to happen once all of this additional demand, it's going to spike the price of everything. So these technologies are incredibly inflationary, not just that they're going to get more. It's not just that the solar panel, or the wind turbine is going to get more expensive or the electric vehicle is going to get more expensive, which they will and they are. But it's also all of the other stuff that relies on those critical minerals, whether it's the housing industry and, you know, use of copper. You know, if there's lack of supply of copper, we know that the price is going to go up. And so this is going to ripple through the economy in so many different ways impacts on many different businesses. Uh, let me come back to nuclear for a second here and back to the ignorance side of it. You know, sorry, I could have asked this earlier, but I didn't. But it's an important question because waste would be one of the things that people fear. The other is a nuclear accident like Fukushima or like Chernobyl. Can you just comment on that, the likelihood of that, that kind of thing? So there's been three major nuclear accidents in the history of the industry since the beginning. And as I mentioned before, I take any accident incredibly seriously, and we need to learn from all of those mistakes. But the reality is, when you look at the overarching impact, in the United States with Three Mile Island, zero people died, zero people were exposed to and got negative impact of the radiation of that incident, right? And so we don't Yes, it was a terrible scare for the people that lived there. I don't want to minimize it, but we have to look at the actual facts on the ground of what the outcome was. And the outcome was no one died and no one got significantly health impacted by the radiation exposure. Then let's look at Fukushima. We had one person to date that has died due to radiation effects of that incident. And that person was died of lung cancer and happened to be a smoker. So they somewhat even contested that that was the only cause. But there was one person. Now, Chernobyl was a terrible accident. When there was about 200 people total, if you include 
all the emergency responders and the people that were involved in the initial accident, as well as since then, any related thyroid cancer deaths. Uh, so it's inclusive of all that. We're talking about 200 people. Um, so we have 40,000 people die in the United States every year in auto accidents, right? We have to keep sense of perspective and proportion here. Millions of people die every year due to air pollution from coal plants. So we're talking about 200 people in almost 70 years of commercial operation versus millions of people dying every year due to the existing competitive technology, which is coal. So we've really lost our ability to, to weigh risk in this scenario. One last thing I want to get to, and that's natural gas as a transition you know, that you've been writing about at Twitter. Go to Brian Gitt, G-I-T-T, Brian Gitt on Twitter. You know, I'm looking at this incredible resurgence of coal. You know, almost wasn't serious. It would be laughable to see Germany say no to nuclear plants, but we're ramping up the coal. To look what China's planning for coal, to look what, it, well, enacting for coal, I should say, India next year, whatever it is, 400 million tons coming online and saying no to natural gas. I mean, it would seem to me that there's the lack of realism and pragmatism is still well with us in not understanding that we're going to use energy. So what's the best case scenario? I mean, you know, when you look at natural gas, what, 40% less emissions than coal, and yet we're still fighting, or some people are fighting natural gas. The majority of the CO2 reductions in the United States, as an example, are due from transitioning from coal to natural gas, because as you mentioned, natural gas has about 50% less CO2 emissions than coal. Also, it has only 10% of the air pollutants is coal. So it's a, it's a very clean burning fuel. And by that transition, 61% of the overall CO2 reductions in the United States from 20, 2005 to 2020, or just around now, have been due to that transition from coal to gas. Compare that to wind and solar. Solar is about 8% of that, and wind is about 31%. So it's dub the, the savings attributed to coal to gas switching is double of what wind has performed and delivered in the same amount of time. And all of the savings the United States has saved is, as a whole, more than all of Europe together. So we have to look at performance of these different technologies. and. Fortunately, we're not really viewing this very with clear eyes and, and seeing all of the benefits that natural gas can deliver. I mean, not only is it producing less CO2 and air pollution, but it uses tremendous less amount of land and mineral resources. It uses 13 times fewer minerals to build a natural gas plant than to build a wind farm, right? Plus, it lasts two times longer than a wind farm. And it also costs a lot less to transport the power to the people who need it, because for a wind farm, it needs to be obviously where the wind is and far away from cities. No one wants these huge wind turbines in a city or in a suburban area. So that requires an incredible amount of new transmission lines. They're talking about in the U.S. to triple the size of the electrical grid in order to meet these renewable energy goals with wind and solar power. And it's not that we don't, of course, we need to upgrade our various distribution and transmission lines that are existing, but they're not talking about just upgrading. They're talking about expanding 3X because to get to these remote areas where the sun and wind resources are, you have to build that capacity, those lines to bring that power to the homes and businesses that need it. And so because of that, there's tremendous cost, billions of dollars of cost involved in, in inefficiency in that. 
And plus, we know how hard it is to build anything today in most of the world, <laughs> unless you're China. I mean, I'm in Canada and the United States, with the various permitting requirements and regulations, it's incredibly difficult to build anything, much less 3Xing the size of the electrical grid. It's an incredible subject that we can never do justice to. But Brian, you do such a brilliant job of doing your research, sharing your research in a way that's understandable. And I appreciate that so much. And this is the part where I sort of trick you and say, we got to visit again in the near future. And then you're forced <laughs> to say yes, because we're live here on the air. No, I, I always enjoy our conversation. I'd love to come back. And if people in the meantime want to kind of learn more about me and my writing or Twitter, they can find me at briangit.com where I write long form articles on energy related topics. And then I'm usually tweeting daily at Brian Git about a whole host of energy related investment related issues. Brian Git and Git is spelled G-I-T-T, BrianGit.com. And that's what I do. I actually go to his website and I look at stuff that he's written on the blog, et cetera, like that, and do follow on Twitter. Just go to Twitter and of course follow at Brian Git. Brian, thanks so much for finding time. You know I'm much appreciated. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Great stuff. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, the climate agenda is no stranger to hypocrisy. I mean, come on, private jets, yachts, the carbon, uh, carbon uh, footprints, rather, of those massive climate fests, along with the double standards of the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do behavior of political elites. But you know what? This may top them all, given we're talking life-and-death consequences for hundreds of millions of people who live in abject poverty in Africa for want of power. You know, an estimated 620 million people in Africa do not have access to electricity, which deems them to a life of abject poverty. And now climate policy and Russian sanctions have had a dramatic impact on fertilizer costs and the availability, which is now going to produce lower crop yields and food shortages. But still, 39 nations, including Canada, signed the Glasgow Agreement at COP26 in November, which committed to ending any support for fossil fuels in Africa by the end of 2022. Well, here's the incredibly hypocritical part that maybe you don't know. While rejecting helping Africa develop natural gas projects and facilities, what natural gas is already produced in Africa is exported to Europe. And now we find Italy has just signed a recent agreement to buy gas from Angola and the Republic of Congo, while Germany has been looking into securing supplies from Senegal. And as for that Glasgow statement to not finance any fossil fuel-related projects, well, at last month's G7 Leader Summit, they backed away a little bit. And they said, hey, they will finance as long as the project will result in more shipments to Europe. It's hard to say that with a straight face, but it brings me to the quote of the week from the Nigerian president, Mohamedou Buhari, who said in quotes, we need long-term partnership not inconsistency and contradiction on green energy policy from the UK and European Union. It does not help their energy security, it does not help Nigeria's economy, and it does not help the environment. It's hypocrisy that absolutely must end." End of quote. Boy, it seems like every week there's something new to talk about in real estate. Well, that's not a surprise. I mean, look at how fast that market is changing. Ozzie Jurek's been on top of that for us really since February when he thought the peak in the market was in. It's certainly been validated since then. But there's a couple of subjects I want to come back to, Ozzie. Got a lot of feedback, by the way, Ozzie, on our chat last week 
about how governments are adding so much to the cost of housing in two ways, that from a first-time buyer getting in, also, though, for existing homeowners. So lots of feedback there. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, we, we don't talk that much about climate change, but now the, uh, the, the, the council, uh, National uh, Research Council warned that the climate change forced changes in primary, secondary structural systems. And of course, it forces higher costs. And in fact, in 2018, that's how long they've been thinking about this, the Canadian Homebuild Association said it would cost the average 2,000 square foot house 30,000 nationally. Now think about this, Mike, that's 30,000 in 2018. That probably would be at least 60,000 today. And that is nationally. So Toronto and Vancouver is looking at a and I'm not making this up, another hundred grand to the cost of the house. Yeah, there's a great example that changing the national building code, that's a regulatory approach. I mean, we're talking 14 million existing homes out there, by the way, but your point is very well taken. It's another example that that wouldn't be reported as, you know, the headline won't read price of housing to go up under that code. You know, it'll be a climate change story, but we've been talking about the price of housing and politicians invite us to because they talk about affordable housing all the time. Well, this is an example where kind of through the back door, I wonder if anybody in government really thought about the impact on the cost of homes when they suggested this approach. Well, the sleeper would be, of course, we're talking about new houses. What if they said every house has to conform to the standards? Now, there was one federal regulator in 2019 said, we wouldn't do that, but hey, that's the sleeper. Yeah, I start laughing. As soon as you said that, I started to laugh. Hey, I want to go to uh, another area. Talk about at least talking the talk, maybe not walking the walk. You know, just released this week where the government says, hey, remember when we promised to get rid of foreign buyers out of the market for at least two years? Well, maybe not. Yeah, well, the thing is, though, that they did pass a bill in Parliament on June 23rd which says no foreigners can buy any residential property effective January 1, 2023, under threat of a 10,000 fine and a forced sale. Now, together with that, though, we also have someone stuttering some numerous loopholes and that somehow how some, somebody happens to be the cabinet. Well, yeah, and the Canadian, didn't they start, uh, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corp, government entity, starts outlining some of the people who'd be exempt that aren't necessarily Canadian citizens. Yeah, so that's immigrants who filed five years' worth of tax returns, foreigners who lived in Canada, minimum of 275 days a year, skilled foreigners with work permits, foreign students, diplomats, refugees, who become important contributors to our economy. Now, that is a huge loophole you can put a truck through. Yeah, you know, this is the kind of thing that should have been addressed up front before, you know, you can see it, they introduce legislation and then there's this outcry saying from somebody who says, hey, I looked, I've worked, I filed taxes, I've worked in the country for five years, I'm just not a citizen, you know, so they have to backtrack because I think too many times these are simply marketing uh, marketing exercises for government to say, look, we care. We're going to get rid of all the foreign buyers. And then they start digging into the details and say, maybe it's not quite as workable. Well, study after study comes out to be a less than 1% foreign buyers, particularly in the last two years. And now it's, it's such a political thing. Trudeau said on August 25th, no more foreign wealth parked in homes that people should be living in, right? I mean, it's like, these are terrible people that uh, these, these foreigners that have come here, apart from the fact that we do welcome the foreign money into commercial real estate and all sorts of other real estate and developments that we want to happen. Now, I'm going to ask 
ask Mr. Trudeau this. How do you feel about Canadians buying in Palm Desert and Palm Springs? Are we these foreign wealth parkers in homes that people should be living in the United States? I mean, this is sort of, sort of an anti-Chinese thing, but really it's the world. We don't want you here. You are terrible people buying our stuff. Yeah, kind of interesting. I mean, I remember your Palm Spring example is a good one because I remember in the 2009, you know, sort of subprime mortgage crisis and the real estate market came to a complete halt. About over half of the sales in Palm Springs were to Canadians because uh, we weren't suffering as much. And also, you were entering a period in 11, 12, 2013, where you had high oil prices. So a lot of people from uh, Alberta seemed to be doing well financially. They went down and bought. And it's interesting. Uh, they're initiating this at a time when our market is weak. Usually, uh, yeah. when you have a weak market, you invite just about anyone to create some liquidity for people who own and want to get out of their property. But it's just kind of interesting. This comes at a time when uh, we have a weaker market, clearly, and yet, uh, you know, we still don't want any foreign buying. I'm just saying it's a really important topic for discussion. Well, so something rings a bell here where Mr. Campbell just recently said time and time again that are they really trying to kill the housing market? Are they really trying to kill the stock market? And the answer, of course, we know in your view. And mine now getting closer and closer as well. I mean, look, the market is cold, rising rates, falling sales, falling prices. Okay, let's take away the foreign buyer for two years. Oh, and we see we're starting a cooling off period, January 1. All that that's designed to what? Kill the market. Hey, I'm going to leave you with one more thing, Aussie, because now that we're in the depressing mode here today, I, I thought I'd leave you with one more. And that is that they have a new tax, the luxury tax is coming in. And this is another tax that hasn't really performed well in other jurisdictions. But I know you as a, a guy who you loves boating, this has an impact there. Well, yeah, it's luxury cars, boats, or personal aircraft. And it's essentially a 10% tax uh, on anything that you buy. Uh, I believe it's uh, the date is September 1, but it could be wrong. It could be January 1 as well. But in any case, the crazy thing is when you take the 13% harmonized sales tax, say in Ontario and other provinces, and then add the 10% luxury tax, and take a $500,000 boat, that adds $115,000 in taxes. What? Take a take a million-dollar boat. That's $230,000. And so the crazy thing is when, this, when you say it quickly, what we don't understand and why, as you pointed out, in five countries, including the U.S., the luxury taxes on boats was tried, and they all have repealed them because it killed thousands of jobs and actually netted less tax money. Think about the example I just said. If it kills sales, which it surely will, the provincial and federal governments will lose 13% HSD or 65,000, 130,000, and 650,000 respectively on the examples that I use. So it's, a, it's, it's silly. It's just never that simple. This is the problem we have. We have simplistic policies. We don't look through the consequences. They always talk about unintended consequences that are devastating. I got to finish with this, though, Ozzy. It wasn't me who only said their goal was to reduce asset prices. It was the yeah. former head of the Federal Reserve in New York, Bill Dudley, who sounded that alarm back, I think, in about February, said, hey, you know what they're doing here? They're going to raise interest rates because they want to get rid of that wealth effect. If my house is going up in price or my other property, my stocks, et cetera, I start feeling, hey, I'm doing pretty well, so I'm more likely to buy. It was their intended goal. It is 
to reduce that feeling and bring asset prices down. So it wasn't just a Mike Campbell kind of made up thing. <laughs> I apologize. There you go. Jason. But <laughs> it, the crazy thing is that historically the rich resist being soaked. And since no one needs a boat except the drowning man, the wealthy buy other things or purchase stocks and we lose all these uh, lots of jobs that are in the luxury sector. So really very surprising. <laughs> Ozzy, great stuff as usual. A reminder for people, go to ozbuzz.ca. But also, I hate this, the summer's going on us. We're only a few weeks away now from the Land Rush Conference, September 10th, landrushcanada.com. I, I hate it. We talked about that about a month ago, and all of a sudden, it's, it's coming right around the corner like school is and all of those things. But I want to remind people to go to landrushconference. No, landrushcanada.com. .ca. Yeah, and it's .com. But uh, but the thing is, is oh, I'm that getting we're... everything wrong. I'm getting <laughs> everything wrong. Try that again. Give us the the proper web address. It's landrushcanada.com. And also, you know, it's we're talking real estate. We're talking mortgages. We have twelve speakers, and we got Justin Smith talk about mortgage funds. So it's not just the hard nuts and bolts of of the market, but Everything you could possibly have a question in your mind will be answered. Great stuff. And you go out and have a great week and just think about Bill Dudley, former head of the Federal Reserve. Thanks, I will. I will. Thanks, uh, Mike. And remember that Bob Hope, I just saw him. He, he's, because I love dancing and he was talking about dancing. And he said, I grew up with six brothers. That's how I learned how to dance, waiting for the bathroom. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek. Time now to go live to the trading desk. And a reminder that the trading desk is presented by G2 Energy, securing tomorrow's unique oil and gas acquisition opportunities today. So for G2 Energy, let's go to Victor Adair, who's live there. Hey, Vic, we talked a bit about this last week, but, you know, you had said, you know, you come into the end of August, sort of the dog days, you know, it's the vacation time for a lot of Europe, that kind of stuff. So you sort of were waiting for the markets to calm down a bit. And then you looked at the energy market, you know, this past week. All I can say is, wow. Yeah, I mean, every year when we have late August, uh, like the adults are out of the room, everybody's on vacation. Uh, and, the, you know, you, I've actually sort of taken the week off. It just seemed like a great time to, to, to back away and spend time with my dog and play a little golf and all of that. But But something, there's always something brewing. And when I was looking around here, European energy costs have just exploded to the upside. And uh, I mean, I, I, I can get into some detail here as to how much, but it's just astonishing. And I would say this, you know, for Canadians, and we have got some of the lowest natural gas prices in the world, because the only export market we have is the United States. And we don't, you know, we produce more natural gas than we need. So we're in great shape. But if Canadians listening to this, could imagine what it would be like if your natural gas bill to heat your house, whatever, was increased by 40 times. Well, that's what's happening in Europe. And that's not just people heating their homes. That's businesses. Like, it is a huge impact in Europe and also in Asia because, you know, people are bidding for nat gas in Asia and the Europeans are trying to get their share. So we have got, and I know we can get into a discussion on this, but we've got soaring energy costs, and that is going to have consequences all over the place. 
Yeah, as Brian was just saying, Brian Gitt was just saying, you know, you're looking at the shutdown of manufacturing in Europe, but especially Germany. We have notable examples already. You know, it's it's hard to imagine where that goes. But I want to come back to this thing where, you know, Canadian producers only get, well, we can pick a price, something like 250 And the reason is because we've only got one market. Now, at one point, you say, hey, that's good. We've got cheap natural gas. The other is that Canadians should be aware this has cost us an unbelievable amount of money. Like if you want to solve homelessness, you want money for health care, you want, I mean, just start making your wish list. Natural gas looks like it has the ability to have solved that if we could get anything close to world prices. I mean, the reason that the U.S. is about four times more than Canada, because they've got a big export, you know, they're huge exporters. So they get closer to the global price. It's just like our Western um, Canada Select. We're stuck with one market, so that's what, you know, we don't get much for it. So it'll be interesting to see if that budgets our price up, but I want people to be very aware it's costing us a fortune. Well, there have been attempts, I guess, in Canada for the last 20 years to build export facilities for natural gas, and for one reason or another, and this is not the time or the place to go into all of that, I guess, but we just don't have a way to export natural gas from this country, and we were we're leaving, I mean, zillions of dollars on the table because we've got vast supplies of natural gas. We could be supporting this. And gee whiz, you know, the amount of money we're taking in from that, we could probably pay 10, 20 percent of some of the federal expenses that they have, uh, you know, that they spend money on down there. Uh, Mike, I could give you a couple of examples. I mean, as a for instance, uh, right now, Canada, let's say, is about two and a half dollars. Uh, per unit for natural gas. In the States, it's about $9. In Japan, it's about $65. And this morning in Holland, it's $85. That's the degree to which they're having a problem over there. And one of the consequences, which we've talked about the past couple of weeks, is in the currency markets. The euro currency is at a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. It is at an all-time low against the Swiss franc. It's dropped four percent, I should eight percent in the last four weeks or so against the Swiss franc. And one of the reasons there, not only just that Switzerland is a safer place to have your money, but the Swiss generate sixty percent of their electricity from small seven hundred or something different small hydroelectric uh, uh, plants, and another thirty-three percent of their electricity from. Uh, pardon me, shit, nuclear. So Switzerland is virtually self-sufficient in energy, whereas the rest of Europe, of course, is in this Hobson's, well, it's not even Hobson's choice, but, you know, depending upon Russia to send them the natural gas they're going to need. And, and just a reminder, if we had, uh, I mean, the federal government and whatever, the government's just canceled LNG plant uh, that had been started up or, or working on since 2014 on the East Coast. But let's let's also remember that aspect. It's not just about money. We could have really eased uh, European dependence on Russia. A huge policy mistake for sure, but we could have mitigated it. And we are not able to do that. Uh, but let me come to one other thing, and that's, I know that uh, you had talked about this before, but, you know, you look at some of those inflation projections for the UK. I think the last one I saw was 18%. Think about that, 18% inflation. But that comes back to this thing where, you know, high energy prices just feed through everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the groceries that you buy in your store, uh, they were delivered there by a truck that was burning fuel to get there. 
One of the things that happens, and we have an old saying on the commodity exchange floors, is that the best cure for high prices is high prices. Well, what happens is there is substitution that happens. For instance, this week, the prime minister of Japan declared that they're going to restart the uh, a number of the nuclear power facilities that they idled following Fukushima. And Japan has no other source of electricity. They have to produce it domestically. Another consequence of soaring natural gas prices is coal is being burned like never before. You know, so there's always these the consequences and, and, and substitution. And uh, I, I just... You know, it just goes on and on, but certainly with the price of energy rising. And Mike, you know, I think maybe for a five-year or so period between 2015 and 2000, uh, maybe 2020, let's start that again, 2015 and 2020, the average price for WTI was about 55 bucks a barrel. And by the way, it was during that time that the Europeans were making this commitment to really go full bore with Russia. But I think people got used to like it was just like a like a god given right that you had cheap energy and you could you know just use it, and we got used to that and made policies kind of on that, and we were able to say, oh, it's it's nasty. We shouldn't be using you know natural gas or crude oil. We should be using wind and solar or whatever. So, yeah, and I know you've gone over this already, but that is just so much. The irony of it is just hard to swallow. Well, you heard this this week, uh, François Macron in France says, hey, we've come to the end of the age of abundance. You know, one of the things you'd, we had talked about, one of the themes on Money Talks had been, you know, the two things, the era of easy money is over and the era of energy abundance is over. And, uh, or not energy abundance, uh, cheap energy, I should have said. I should have said cheap energy, low interest rates. Man, the consequences we're going to be able to talk about, I'm afraid, for a long, long time. But Vic, I want to just also say uh, to people to go to your website, victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. You must have a lot of charts ready to throw up for me this weekend to look at. Well, you know, uh, Mike, I, I have been on vacation this week, as I say, taking my dog to the beach and that sort of thing. Uh but I'm looking forward to the fall. As we discussed last week, I think markets are going to come back with a bang, you know, as reality hits, as we start back after Labor Day is what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, I, I'm just so it, it, it wrapped up. I'm just so excited, I guess, looking forward to what's going to happen. And I'm not particularly happy about it. I, I think we've got some some tough sledding coming up here. But boy, oh boy, uh, I'm really looking forward to the fall and, and the market action we're going to have. Well, I'm glad you'll be here with us to chat about it, victordare.ca. Have a great week, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Hey, just a reminder that the Trading Desk is brought to you by G2 Energy. G2 Energy trades on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol GTOO. So go to g2.energy and you can learn a lot more and see the investor's fact sheet. Time now for the Goofy Award, and I think this is another blow to the we're just following the science crowd, but it's one that resulted in hundreds of thousands of people losing their job. And given that Western University, University of Toronto, and parts of the military and government are still enforcing vaccine mandate, I think it's pertinent, at least to discuss. Specifically, the Center for Disease Control has changed its guidelines while acknowledging the protection provided by natural immunity. As Greta Massetti She's the uh, CDC's epidemiologist, one of them. She says in quotes, both prior infection 
and vaccination confer some protection against severe illness. And so it really makes the most sense not to differentiate with our guidance or our recommendations based on vaccination status at this time. Well, because of this, the CDC's new guidelines treat vaccination and unvaccinated people the same, especially those who've had prior infection and have gotten over COVID. That's the key point here. But come on, this is a year after President Biden targeted the unvaccinated. And it doesn't matter whether they'd already had and recovered from COVID. He said that COVID was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And he said that despite this time, this time last year, August 2021, Science Magazine, peer-reviewed academic journal of the American Association for Advancement of Science, highlighted a groundbreaking research study from Israel. It was entitled Comparing SARS-CoV-2 Natural Immunity to Vaccine-Induced Immunity reinfections versus breakthrough infections. Well, they had a database of 2.5 million Israelis and found that previous infection from COVID-19 conferred, in the findings of the study, considerably stronger, longer-lasting protection against the Delta variant than vaccines. Yet that finding, and there was dozens of others, even at that time, had reached similar conclusions about the importance of natural immunity. But they were ignored, until this recent announcement by CDC, still being ignored by the Canadian government. And it's to the detriment of tens of thousands of unvaccinated workers, but who have had COVID and recovered, who are still off the job. They deserve, I think, an official apology for being targeted by government, leading to being, well, they were fired, ostracized, and shamed. And many times, though, it was for political advantage. And well after the research had concluded the importance of natural immunity. At the same time, epidemiologists, for example, have known for months that vaccinated people can transmit COVID. Obviously, unvaccinated people could too, but so that aspect of vaccine mandates was discredited. I mean, keep in mind, the vaccine mandate, which the prime minister strongly rejected right through May 2021, until the polls sound it may have been a political winner on the eve of the fall election. So it was far more about politics and science. In fact, we got a recent court case that we talked about on Money Talks, revealed that government still has no research to back up vaccine mandates for travel. But now the Center for Disease Control admits they were wrong and has reversed their stance on natural immunity. Well, I won't hold my breath for the Canadian government to do the same thing. That's all the time we have this week. And just a reminder, by the way, I just let me just say, I really appreciate you listening, but I appreciate people who send us messages of support through Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook or at mikesmoneytalks.ca. It means a lot to us. Uh, we work hard on the show. We try and bring you a product that is valuable for us. As I always say, I just want to bring some facts, maybe perspective, but you have to make up your own mind on so many important issues here. If it is food for thought, got one uh, comment this week saying he finds it's amazing how much food for thought he gets after every episode. Couldn't be happier. And that's why I say, please join us on Money Talks tweets and click the like buttons or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And again, subscribe to it. And subscribe to us on our Money Talks or Mike's Money Talks.ca, and you can get the podcast regularly. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have an absolutely terrific week.